Live from Red Bull Studios, New York. listeners out there. This podcast is an offshoot of Top Rank Magazine, and we kind of think of this uh, podcast as a research-oriented platform grounded really in conversation, obviously. Um, And working in collaboration with our guests and our listeners, we hope to create a flexible knowledge production outlet that is exploratory rather than prescriptive or conclusive. This is Isabel. And this is Marcel. So today we're recording at Red Bull Arts New York with three very special guests, Kalila Dews, Kimberly Drew, and Rabia Kamir, to hear their take on what we're calling social media identity politics. But before we do that and um, get into some formal introductions, we'd actually just like to set up a framework for what we're going to be talking about today. So over the last 30 or so years, um, the framework of identity politics has become a really critical mechanism for self-realizing, for self-expression, as well as for articulating politics and cultural alliance building that challenges um, traditional authoritarian power structures. More recently, however, and pretty obviously, um, the internet and social media in particular have provided a critical public, but also highly personal, space for anyone who has access to a computer or smartphone to distill and perform their identity, and as well to have an audience for that performance. Um, The personal relevance of this is huge, and what we've come to see is that the professional implications are also seemingly endless and hold the potential of unraveling and restructuring the way information is disseminated and the way money is made and therefore the way power itself is manifested. We all, to some extent, came of age online, and importantly, in a moment when women could manufacture and circulate their own version of selfhood, and perhaps even more importantly still, could capitalize on that subjectivity itself. Today, we would like to reflect on how our generation has adapted to, struggled with, and harnessed these seismic shifts. So we would now like to introduce those people who have joined us today. Um, first, Brooklyn-based Kalila Dews is social media editor at The Outline and working especially on social and audience development. Previously, she led the social media team at Genius and was the social media editor at The Fader. Yay, welcome to Hi, the Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay. Our next fabulous guest is Kimberly Drew, who is a curator, writer, lecturer, and thinker. By day, she's social media manager at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She founded the very well-known Tumblr blog, Black Contemporary Art, has a popular Instagram account that you all should follow, at Museum Mammy, and was a recipient of Air Gallery's first Feminist Curator Award, as well as also being selected as one of Brooklyn Magazine's most influential people in their recent culture issue. Welcome, Kimberly. Welcome. Thanks, guys. I'm so so excited to be in the internet with you. (laughs) Great to have you here. And Rabia Kamir is culture editor at The Outline and has previously worked as as a writer and editor at The Fader. She is focused on music and internet culture, and actually Kalila and Rabia work together at the moment and have previously. Lucky me. (laughs) (laughs) So... To start out, we have, so we have tailored some questions kind of specifically to each of you, but to start out and kind of get us warmed up, we wanted to ask two sort of general, anyone jump in and say whatever. So the first one is, has three parts, but they're all related. When did you first start to use the internet as a means of self-expression? What site or platform did you use first? And if you care to share, what was your username or handle? So anyone who wants to, to start with this. I can start. Um, this is Kalila. Um, I, let's see, I think when I first got a computer in my room is probably when I, like, started to, like, spend time on the internet heavy. Um, I remember being on AIM, like, every day after school, AOL Instant Messenger, um, 
Does still exist. <laughs> For those of you who you don't know, know. Rally and I yeah. used it when we first started at the Fader, and then we moved on to Slack a little while after that. But I feel like people still use it, it exists, oddly yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, my username was SpecialK3591. Hey. <laughs> Before I knew that it wasn't just a serial. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I think I would say that in terms of, like, personal expression, I was really big on MySpace. So after AIM came MySpace, and I think um, that was where I sort of, like, created this world for myself that I felt was very unique. And um, I think everyone who was on MySpace was pretty much like making a unique sort of page. I also kind of learned HTML on MySpace. Um, so yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think I'm a little bit older than most of you guys. So my experience on the internet started um, in, the, in the mid to sort of late 90s. Um, and I was sort of, I would go on, it wasn't Google, whatever search platform it was. And I would find rap websites and then I would participate in the forums or the message boards or leave messages um, in people's guest books and then have to manually come back and see who had responded to me. And then I joined, uh, I think it was called GeoCities or Angel Fire, one of those uh, communities, and started making my own stuff. So I had like a, a Craig David fan site. I had a Cisco <laughs> fan fiction site. <laughs> a Cisco fan fiction site. Um, we have to dig that one up. I have to say, my Cisco fan fiction site was the premier fan fiction on the internet at the time. Like it, wow. it had huge wow. numbers. It was it was so weird. I was like in middle school. I don't. It was very bizarre. Um, and around the same time, I was also really active in Yahoo Chats, which was, I think, probably around the same time as AIM, but it, it sort of had um, more specifically tailored chat rooms where you could meet people and sort of befriend them and just talk about whatever. And I think that's probably where I learned HTML. And then eventually I joined MySpace, and I think I've probably been active on every social platform to, to some extent. Willing to disclose a handle from your Cisco fan fiction? <laughs> I would have a new handle like every week, but I think my first one was like Wu Tang Butterfly ninety eight. Nice, <laughs> amazing, amazing. Maria is one of those people that like every time you speak, you just get more cool. <laughs> it's stressful. Uh, my first internet community, I definitely was in AOL chat rooms, and I like to joke with people because I was I was out here catfishing people like <laughs> OD, like oh in 2000. God. I didn't really have a strong sense of who I was, but I knew really well how to pretend to be someone else, um, really, really well. Um, but in terms of myself and creative expression, I definitely was an AIM kid. My username there was Lady Deathstrike. <laughs> The, cat, about. the catfisher. Right, the catfisher. Um, I would be on there like, I work for the Pentagon. Um, <laughs> wow. And then I uh, was definitely deep into MySpace. There was like some amazing meme that was like talking about how young black kids were just flirting with like $100,000 skills. Like I was there too. I was deep I with like making the glitter yes. and like the, you know, the clicker. And, and it really led me into the Tumblr community like full, like ready. I was ready for war when it came to building a Tumblr page. Um, and then another community that was actually really instrumental for me, and that was later in life, is Downlink, which was a queer kind of connection site um, that I used a lot when I was in high school. I went to boarding school in Rhode Island, and um, my friend and I, we would be on Downlink every night, and it was just like this amazing outlet in our super conservative environment to be able to connect with people all over the world and to jump into really weird chat rooms. Uh, but yeah, the internet and that interne interconnectivity has always been like such a savior and very important. So, yeah, I mean, I think the reason why Isabel and I were interested in doing this topic is kind of just realizing the fact that a lot of us came of age as sort of the Internet and, like, the infrastructure of the Internet was also coming of age as well. So there's kind of, like, these parallel parallel processes, I guess. So I'm interested to hear from you all about, okay, really heavy into the Internet as a child – an adolescent, when did you first kind of perceive a possible link between, you know, this online presence that you had for fun to something you could do for work and get paid for? Like, when did that, like, kind of light bulb go off or become a reality for all of you? Or maybe when did the opportunity present itself and you're like, hey, I can turn this into a job? What? Hmm? Or sorry, can I add one more, th can I add one more thing? Yes. Um, did you realize that you were good at it in a way? Because I feel like some people are good at at, be, at the internet, being online, and are good at social media, and that's a real thing. And I'm mm -hmm. curious if like that was a skill that you were aware that you had. 
Yeah, it's interesting because for me, we got our first computer in 96. And so I don't know a life without a computer. And it's interesting talking to elders who are like, you need to unplug. And I'm like, no, bro. Like, there was never there was never an unplug to unplug from. Like, I've always been plugged. Um, but in terms of the question about what it meant to turn it into a career, for me, it really it started with career first and then lent itself into the way that I share online. Or I'd always been sharing, but lent itself into the, the voice that I was really building institutionally anyway. Um, I did an internship at the Studio Museum in Harlem, and when I was there... I was put into contact with so many amazing black artists that I just never knew and more importantly had no idea how I would have learned if I wasn't physically on that site um, and working in that office at the time when I was there. And so when I got back to my college campus, I wanted to find another outlet or, or repository for those kinds of images and names and I couldn't find one and so I started my own blog. It was great, especially in the context of the art world because I didn't have a lot of pressure to succeed, which I think is the best thing if you're thinking about social media, because there's all these pressures about good or bad. I didn't have to be good or bad. I was just doing it out of pure, like, if I don't do this, I'll forget these names, and then it'll be a waste of time for all the people that taught me things. Um, and so I built my blog. I didn't expect anyone to follow it. My friend Kendra, like, very vividly remembers me, like, so hype when I got my first 100 followers. And I still feel that joy, you know, all the time. It's really cool. Uh, but it wasn't until I graduated from college and came to New York um, and had my first mentor here that someone had to sit me down and, and say, this is important. Uh, because before that, it was just really a hobby. It was just a thing that I was totally committed to. I was on Tumblr all day, every day, because I, like, get very Kanye about things. And legit, like, if you could go back in the receipts, like, I was posting every two hours every day for like the first year and a half. And it was like obscene and obsessive and dark, uh, but ended up being something really wonderful and turned itself into a career. Everyone was worried about me being able to graduate from school. Joke's on you, I work at the Met now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, it was sort of this thing that I was able to um, like get into spaces because of it and spaces that I, felt like I needed or, or wanted, like, when I was in college, I really needed a job, but I had a job on campus, and I hated it, and I wanted to, like, get some real experience, and um, I, I worked for this local business, this woman who was, like, a real estate agent, and she, like, I don't know, we sort of hit it off because she had been showing some apartments in my building, and it was very random, and she was like, I really need some help, like, I just don't know how to send emails. Like, I don't know this Facebook stuff. Like, and I was like, I really need a job, so I will help you. <laughs> and it was something that I felt like I didn't really have to teach myself. Um, I think the other side of it, too, is, like, I'm such a lurker. Like, I spend so much time on social media, but I'm not the kind of person that needs to post all the time. But because of that, I sort of feel this, like, very fluid, comfortable um, presence in a way. So, like... I know what people are going to respond to just because I'm looking at it all day. Um, but yeah, I think in, in terms of like my actual career, like I had internships in media when I was in college, I was thinking about being a writer or like what that meant. And I think at the time that I graduated, it ended up coinciding with like this time where everyone was looking for a social media editor, but like didn't know how to judge who was good at it or, like, what it meant. So it's kind of like, oh, you have, like, writing experience? Perfect. We don't have a writer job, but, like, we have social media. We need someone to do social media. Like, are you down? So it's kind of like, oh, I can get into this space that I want to be in. And I sort of, with time, found that I was pretty good at it. So, yeah. Um, my experience is a little bit different uh, because I've never really worked professionally in social except for a, a brief stint as a social intern. But I'd always been interested in technology, so when Twitter launched um, at South By, I think it was like 2007 or 2008, I signed up and I'd been using it just sort of as a sort of personal thing. And then a few years later, um, after I'd finished grad school for journalism, I broke my ankle and I ended up spending months in bed, had nothing to do, um, and so I just started tweeting a lot. And I realized that people liked my tweets. Um, so I started making connections with other writers and editors. And it was sort of, for me, a way into 
journalism that I had never really had. I didn't have the same connections uh, professionally that a lot of my classmates did. And culturally, I always sort of felt outcast from uh, the sort of New York City media scene. Uh, and Twitter, I think, ended up being a way for me to uh, get into that. And I think without it, I probably would not be at the point in my career that I am. Remarkable ladies. So, <laughs> okay. have to put that so out we do there. have some specific questions, but if so, we'll ask them. But if anybody else wants to like jump in on another person's question or you know has their own version of an answer, absolutely feel free, like at the end, absolutely feel free to do so. So, Kimberly, I'm going to ask you something first. Um, so, you are the social media manager for one of the largest, most visited, and historically most influential art institutions in the world. And you also created, as we've mentioned, this online art platform, Tumblr, Black Contemporary Art. Do you believe that it's possible, or how do you think it's possible to create new arts institutions online? And how, do you, how have you been able to sort of integrate all these disparate I identities and agendas, and how has your personal relationship to social media allowed you to do that or like equipped you to do that? I know that's a multi-part question, but yeah. any way that you want to go with it. Uh, I mean, one of the best things about art history and history in general is that there's always a story to tell. There's always pockets. There's always opportunities to find some new narrative that needs to be told or at least needs to be told in a new way. Um, What's interesting to me about social media is that it arrives so much later than the other forms of storytelling in the arts. And so people freak out about it as if it's this like alien creature landing upon um, the art world. And really, it is so much a, a continuation of the way then in which we've connected with each other. It very much is thinking about something like a saline style conversation, but just happening in public um, in a way that is unprecedented. I think the dialogical nature is what's intimidating to people in the world of art and culture. Um, even observing today when there are exhibitions that people just will never see but can interact about is quite interesting to me as an observer. Um, in terms of integrating different... Sorry, can you do, like, the integrating oh, yeah, question? yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to say, how do you... How have you tried or been able to sort of integrate these disparate identities and agendas, like even something like having this Tumblr where you are giving a space for people or stories that, you know, are not part of necessarily the Met conversation. Like, how do you find a place for those things to meet? Yeah. Or it, is that really hard? I don't think it's really hard. It's it's also not really a consideration of mine. Uh, for me, if I, c if I can go there, I think a lot about Black contemporary art as an opportunity to think about blackness as an encyclopedic kind of way of looking at artistic production. Um, and for me, it really was about people and where they came from more so than what they're making. Um, where with museum collections and the way that things are housed or stored in physical collections, there are these other limitations that I just never was subject to. Uh, in addition, the blog that I run is all images because I wanted to create a primary source for folks, uh, a site for inspiration, more so than a site for digestion. I've never written an essay um, and posted it on the blog. I've never, ever imposed a particularly direct position on anything. Um, and I like would even dare not to call it a blog for that reason. Um, it really is a repository and an archive of the things that I've observed. Uh, whereas with the Met, it's a primary source in all different types of ways. Um, the project, one of the, my favorite Met projects, is the timeline of art history, where it's just like straight up word of mouth—not word of mouth—but the primary kind of scholar on some area of art history and time writing about it. It's there's no sources because that is the source, um, and so bringing uh, and working in a space where there's just this incredible level of expertise has been really impactful in the way that I move through the rest of the world because I know, I mean, on a very personal level, like I know I'm an expert at, a, at an institution that hires experts. Um, and that's been an amazing kind of, amazing kind of confidence booster. Um, and one thing that I've been really intrigued by recently, especially for myself, because in my time at the Met, I've come into understanding myself more as a writer and it was always super insecure about it. But then to think about this conversation we're having about social media, and especially for brown people online, we've had this incredible ability to communicate. And that, uh, I think, that confidence happens outside of um, 
the pressures of perhaps uh, these elitist communities and understandings around uh, writing and articulation. Uh, you think about Black Twitter or a community like that, like the freedom to use and get very jazzed about the internet and the way of sharing is amazing and super impactful that people of all ages from around the world can participate and feel empowered to in the way that if you ask those same people to write a five paragraph essay, they would be frozen. Mm-hmm. And and for me, that's really quite intriguing and, and something I feel so strongly. Um, so when I think a lot about the ways in which those two worlds intersect, it's so much more personal than I think people understand. Like, the Met is the Met. The Met is 140 goddamn years old. I am, Kimberly Drew, I am 26. I make mistakes. I'm messy. I'm a messy bitch. And the Met is not a messy bitch at all. <laughs> um, but somehow they, they got it, the courage to hire someone like me to make some changes there. And it's, it's been a really amazing ride. And I'm coming up on two years, which is like crazy. It's the longest time I've ever had a job. Um, and it's, it's such a treat. All right. Anyone else have anything to weigh in on? Well, I guess we ask. We have a question similar. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if anybody wanted to talk about a relationship they've had between their, you know, personal, um, their personal journey with social media and like doing institutional work in that vein, I mean, feel free to, or we can move on to. We can come back to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, so my, the next question I have is actually for Rawia. I mean, I guess it goes without saying that social media is pretty much like undeniably one of the most important tools currently for galvanizing and driving today's social justice movements. But as we've been seeing sort of the implications of social media in the fight for freedom, basically, are more ambiguous and actually a lot more complicated um, than it might appear at first glance. So, Rari, you wrote this really amazing and interesting article in uh, The Fader uh, that I really enjoyed and I actually want to talk to you about called How Social Justice Became Cool. And you make a really interesting argument in the article and you say that uh, social media has turned the performance of, quote, wokeness into a kind, a new kind of social capital that if actually not continuously checked, risks turning the struggle for liberation into another basically marketable trend. So... I find that that article really uh, that article and that argument really compelling, um, and I would love to hear more about what you mean by this, and also what you were seeing in the social media space that kind of um, impelled you to write the article in the first place. I think when I wrote that, it, it was in 2015, so a couple years ago now, and I think my focus was overly on celebrities because that was sort of um, a, a big part of the conversation where celebrities were becoming uh, increasingly active and uh, quote-unquote woke in in, uh, spaces that they hadn't been before. Um, And to, you know, a a little bit of it is cynicism, right? But ultimately it came from a place of wondering how much of it was uh, genuine and productive and how much of it was a part of a construction of a, 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 a self-serving public identity. And of course, everything we do is performance to some extent and everything we do is ultimately self-serving. So I don't mean that as like a, a diss or anything, but, uh, I, you know, I was just observing that it became increasingly demanded that people participate in, in, in these important conversations and the effect of that, I felt sometimes, was that a retweet or posting a comment became enough. Um, and that's sort of where the conversation too often would end. And, uh, you know, as you said, social media has been so important in galvanizing a lot of these movements that are super, super important and instrumental in, in sort of lighting a way forward. But when it becomes the, the sort of end all of the conversation, it, it can be a bit more dangerous than it's worth. Right. I mean, for me, this whole like performance of social justice kind of identity came into relief during the whole like string of women's marches. Mm-hmm. I mean, not only did I hear about people like pre-gaming for the marches, which I was oh, just like, um, all right. But just like <laughs> observing, like it was, it became really f- sinister, but fun to sort of watch people taking pictures and like posting like at the protest just like seeing the way people's like how they would pose and like let me do a serious let me do a serious post let me do like a fun like having fun at the march post so it became this kind of exactly to your point like what are we performing like what are really the stakes and yeah this i think kind of- a lot of that 
peaked with the Women's March where it became a sort of pressure to, to post something or to say that you were somewhere without actually following up on that in, in, in daily life. And I think when I wrote the story, a lot of it was focused on um, sort of the increased publicization of, of uh, police killings. Um, and it became this thing where I was like, okay, you guys are a lot of people in my life or people that I follow on the internet were like posting hashtags and retweeting stories, but then re sort of, um, re what's the word reinforcing, uh, uh, the, the sort of same systemic issues in the workplace or in their mm -hmm. social lives or, or whatever. And it was just like, what, what, what's the point of this? You know? Mm -hmm. Right. I don't know if anyone else had any feelings about this kind of performance of social justice awareness on social media. Is this something that you that you all have seen, or is this something that I'm like? I mean, up? I think in general, like the the internet and the social web in particular, is a place where we're all, you know, you have the privilege to be able to construct an identity for yourself that is your best self. You get to put your best self forward, and I think it's a good thing that social justice is considered to be a good thing to put forward. Um, so I think it definitely goes beyond just the conversation that we're having in terms of activism. But, you know, in the same way that you would light a selfie to make you make yourself look the most attractive, other parts of your personality are sort of e easily um, sort of applied in that same sense. Right, yeah. I think there's also something interesting about um, how how you you can kind of use these spaces to make yourself feel better and or shame other people for not using them the same way. And that's something I think about a lot as someone who, like, is very uh, selective about what I do online personally. Um, and, I mean, we were just talking about this today with, like, a news story about um, teenager, teenage women in D.C., uh, who've gone missing and how, you know, it kind of blew up over this tweet where this woman was essentially saying, like, you know, it takes, like, three seconds to retweet this. Like, just do it. And I I don't know, I kind of, I was like, this is great. Like, 100,000 people retweeted this. But as someone who, like, is very selective about how I move in the social web, I think, and I mean, the Women's March, I felt the same way. I didn't personally go, but I saw a lot of it on my timeline. Um and I was like, wow, like, it's really hard to not feel ashamed for not participating in this space. But at the end of the day, if it's like, you know, it happens and then it's over and that's the end of the conversation, like, how good can you feel about it? How bad can you feel about it? It's something I think about a lot. Hmm. Yeah, for me, I've uh, been thinking a lot. I, I studied black studies in college and have been thinking so much about the images of the civil rights movement and thinking about the work of an artist like Danny Lyons uh, and how much, and recently there was a documentary about the Black Panthers and thinking about how these movements have been really well documented historically uh, and that in the way that the media responded to that documentation, it was, I mean, when we think about the Black Panthers, we very much think about the clothing, mm -hmm. like, Period. You know, you think about an Afro as a form of revolution, as opposed to thinking about the free breakfast program, as opposed to knowing Fred Hampton and how he was murdered. Um, and so I think one of the things that's interesting, or even thinking, you know, fast forward to the way that uh, Standing Rock was documented, um, how, like, I don't read a single article by a First Nations person about it, but I saw many videos of beautiful people on beautiful horses. Um, and I think that those things make me really suspect um, but it is something that's very much a part of a tradition. And, you know, thinking before that, there have just been so many areas and instances that, where propaganda was used to be able to communicate about oppression or, you know, the tool of the oppressors themselves um, and how this is not unlike that. Um, what perhaps is different to me and intriguing is that there is an opportunity for more voices just because there are more spaces that people can place themselves. Um, and one thing that's been really interesting to me as a person who has been very much pegged as an activist, but I don't necessarily identify that way all the time or in the way that people would assume. Um, for me, I'm just, I don't want to just be the face of something. And I think if there's a way from like one thing I've been really calling the publications that asked me to participate in stuff in is just like, I will happily write the essay. 
And that perhaps is, is something, too, about, you know, writing and social media is that there are people with the tools and the confidence and the awareness to be able to put pen to paper about these issues. And it's not just about the image. It's not just about how well you can hold up your pussy hat. Um, it really is, you know, your considerations and the depth through which you think about these ideas because so many of these issues are intersectional. And, and to the point of thinking about a celebrity or a celebrifying these movements, you can be a celebrity that's really down for Clean Water Day, but if you are also a celebrity who's really down for Clean Water Day, but you're doing a campaign with Urban Outfitters, I don't know. I don't know about you. Um, and until people can properly have the platforms articulate themselves, then we only see one part of the narrative. And I think that that, for me, is the part that's really most difficult. And, and in the same way that, you know, the Panthers were oppressed in terms of imagery. It, it, it just, those things are so deeply linked. Yeah, that's, I mean, I feel like if there's one thing that I have noticed about social media from my not very long time on it and the also brief time that it has existed is that, you know, public opinion is always fickle, but I feel like online it's, it's especially fickle. And as soon as something becomes kind of popping online, people want to go with that and they want to retweet it or do that. But then that can just so quickly shift. And I feel like the thing I remember very clearly, like a time when it wasn't cool to be political in the same way and where a lot of my peers, I felt, were actually like very apolitical. And I'm very glad that that's not the case anymore. Like hopes and dreams come true. But it scares me to think about a possibility of that also changing, you know, so quickly. And exactly as Kimberly was saying, if it's about an aesthetic and not about an idea or a lifestyle or, you know, a critical ideology, then there's not much to prop it up when the support kind of falls. Um, so, but, but, but I do think that all these things are ultimately hopeful. Mm -hmm. Even, I mean, even if we're having this conversation, which is important to have, like these changes are really exciting, so. Um, anyway, and a question for you, Kalila. Um, what are your, as you said, you're a lurker and you spend a lot of time <laughs> online, but I'm wondering if you have any particular kind of rituals for dealing with social media um, mm -hmm. and what your day-to-day -day experience, like what's your, what's your strategy and way of curating and, and synthesizing content for companies that you work with and for yourself? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I have a very technical answer for you. Uh, I think like I, I literally like will put lists together of who to follow. Um, I use TweetDeck. That's the first thing I check every morning. Um, I think it's kind of, it's, it's, I don't think you can really say that like, it's a ritual or like working in social media has rituals because all of it is so, a lot of it is just so unpredictable and like never ends at the same time that like you can't really get into like strict routines. Um, but yeah, I think what I try to do is I try to stay curious as much as possible. Um, I try to like, you know, these social media platforms change like every week, like there's some new feature or like something like that. And like, I think, a struggle for me, but also uh, something that keeps the job dynamic is like, like try out the new thing like every time it comes out. Um, try to find more people or more communities because they pop up like every month. There's like something new going on, um, and yeah, I think outside of that, like day to day, I I have like my feeds, um, and it's interesting now working at the Outline, which is like a new company. We're kind of you know, we have our, it's not for everyone, it's for you. That's like our tagline. But like, it's also like, what does that mean? It's kind of like up to all of us that work there to figure that out. So it's an exciting position to be in because, you know, social is kind of like the front facing thing for a lot of people with the outline. Um, so it's, you know, it's a big responsibility. It's like, how do we communicate the brand to people who've never heard of us? We're very new. Um, but it's super exciting and it's it's cool that it's like not entirely defined because I get to like my role holds a lot of weight and also we get to own a lot as like the editorial staff there. Um, 
So yeah, I hope that answers yes. your question. Cool. We talked too about this idea of like it never ending because yeah. the inner, like, do you, are you always by your like computer? Do you have situations where you've had to like leave a party and tweet something? Like, I so literally have a story. Like, <laughs> okay, yes, please, because I just am wondering, like, you know, I, yeah, the, the party thing definitely happened to me. It was like pretty intense. It was New Year's Eve, and we actually were having the party at our house, um, and. Kanye's um, the song for North only one yeah only one dropped like at midnight on New Year's Eve and I was like my sister was DJing the party and I got a text and like luckily I had a coworker there with me who was a writer we like ran off into a room and we were like we need to blog this right now like this is when I was at the fader and this is like honestly like one of the biggest news stories for us like of the year um, so yeah, that it's, that's the kind of thing where it's like, it doesn't matter if it's midnight and you're at a party and it's New Year's Eve and it's a new year and you're with your sister and your best friends, like you still have to turn everything off like mentally and go into another space and like get online, um, which has its tolls. So you need to take vacations, <laughs> um, which I try to do. Um, but yeah, I think a big thing for me too is like knowing when to sort of put my foot down and be like, okay, it's okay that, like, we missed something because there's always going to be something that happens when you're asleep or when you're out of the country or, like, whatever it is. <laughs> when you're asleep, There's literally oh, always going to be something, and, like, you cannot do it all. And I think, for me, that was... There was definitely a point I came to where I was like, okay, I'm not gonna... I'm not gonna worry about this. Like, it's... We're not saving lives here, so... I was, yeah, I was just <laughs> curious about how you set those limits, even, like, with sleep, because, like, yeah. the world goes on online as we sleep. How about you two? Social media rituals. What are the first things you check in the morning, if at all? Or I go through those sort of phases. There, there was always a joke when I worked at the Fader and, and still among my friends that I could disappear from Twitter and Instagram at any given Like I'll have a little panic attack and just deactivate everything and then go away for a month. Um, and during those times, I sort of start to realize kind of like what Kalila was saying it's really not that deep like um, the, the, like the world is still turning it's gonna be fine um, but when I'm active what it's it's really awful I check Twitter's probably the first thing I check in the morning and I never have the Twitter app downloaded on my phone I only use Twitter mobile because the experience is so bad that it forces me to use it less wow um, but self control yeah, yeah. But that's really the only... I don't really look at Instagram very often or or at Facebook very often. Um, those are places for me where it's just, like, people who want to borrow money or something. <laughs> Twitter is usually where I'm mostly at. <laughs> uh, right now, I'm, I'm deactive on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, but traditionally... Well, actually, okay, so fun, fun Women's March story. I just went to Cuba. Um, We're going to Cuba. Sorry. Is it? Is it? Is it? Is I, as a person who, one, lives very much with anxiety, um, and so going to any march of any type is just, there's a whole, want to talk about rituals? I'm like, looking at myself in the mirror like, you not going to have a public panic attack. <laughs> um, and the last, like, march visual I went to was for Orlando, which was... Chrissy, because that was the one that they like surprised everybody with Nick Jonas. And I was just like, okay, great. I'm not ever doing any public organizing ever again. It doesn't matter. I'm just not going and it doesn't feel worth it. And someone can tell me later. Um, but all that to say, I went to Cuba and had this strange idea that there would be internet there and there wasn't. <laughs> Plot twist there were internet cards and um, it was so limited and so difficult that I just totally was offline couldn't even text anybody um and so that opportunity and being so close to the water whatever because I'm all spiritual whatever with my crystals and um that freedom was really lovely and so since then I've just been periodically pulling back um because it's really weird to have a device that makes you so easy to connect with and um I'm, I feel very lucky at the stage of my career that people are paying attention to what I do um and that being sharing the work of other people um but also my DMs are wild <laughs> wild I can only imagine wild and uh you know 
it's like that meme with the like the African kid from London who like does the like you can't if you can't like you can't DM me dumb shit if you can't DM me is is really where I'm at right now or at least this week. Um, but I I don't know I think it's I think it's a place for inspiration constantly. Like I am such a huge proponent of being on social and often talk to people of all different walks of life of all different ages and do teach-ins and I'm really invested in in getting people up to speed on these platforms because they are so important and increasingly important under the 45th. Um, but all that to say that there's always room to pull back. Um, and, you know, there, there are all different types of pressures depending on where you are socioeconomically. I could never say that, like, not being online at a certain time will not end your career because it very much could. Um, but at the same time, self-care and self-preservation uh, arrives for different people in different ways. And for me right now, that means being deactive. Hmm. Yeah, I'm actually curious if you all are willing to share, like I know Ravi and Kimberly, this idea of pulling back. When is that something you do sort of periodically? Like when do you need, find the need to do that kind of detox? I usually do it on Twitter every few months. Um, and it's just usually when, you know, I, as an anxious person, when I'm feeling particularly anxious, I spend way more time on Twitter and on other social platforms. And when it gets to be too much, the sort of conflation of those two factors, um, just it's just like it's never premeditated. It's just like this is a moment that I can't deal with anymore, whether it's something that's related to the news or whether it's sort of being triggered by someone else's personal experiences that are being shared, whatever the case may be. It's just sort of something that happens in the moment. It's, it's rarely premeditated for me. Hmm. And I've realized that a, a lot of my friends and sort of acquaintances online are doing a similar thing. I think we're all, well, I shouldn't speak for everyone, but I think a lot of people are at a point where they realize that, you know, social is here to stay and we're, we're going to use it. Um, so, deactivating the sort of temporary leave of absence is a bit more of a practical way to deal with it than completely uh, disappearing. Right. Yeah, I have my own set of abandonment issues. I hate ghosting culture so much with a passion. Hmm. Um, and so I don't really have like a routine or anything like that for, for disappearing online. I haven't deactivated in years. Um, it was just a decision that I made for myself this week um, because I couldn't read anybody else talking about a particular art show on view right now. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, to, to Ruia's point about understanding that social is here to stay, it's, it's just the rate at which I check it personally because it's my job um, and then also my life it's just good to know that I can unplug in some ways. I made dummy accounts for the Met and it was the best decision that I made. The best hands down decision I've made for myself in a really long time. Um, and it was interesting today, actually, I felt lonely at work. It was so absurd. I was sitting in my office and I just like went and started borrowing my interns because I was legit at my desk feeling like so sad and forlorn and alone because normally at, on Fridays at two is when it gets popping <laughs> and I'm like deep in like all these groups and engaging and talking to people around the world and learning from them. And even I, I started doing these posts recently where I'm just like, tell me positive things or what were little victories for you? And then I'll get like 70 people responding with literally the most amazing things and, and not having an outlet for asking those kinds of questions and holding even positive forms I was just I felt without mm. um and I've only been deactive for like three days and it's making me feel like such a crazy person because I'm legit sad um and that wasn't the anticipation that wasn't like the plan um but I'm trying to make it to Monday to just see you know if the emotional kind of landscape changes because I knew that what I was feeling was pure depression and now it's just like the sads and perhaps there can be some joy and freedom or not, or I can reactivate and it's totally chill. And the part that's most exciting is the agency to do so. And I'm trying mm -hmm. to focus on that too. It's also heartening to know that we have a couple members of the Anxious Ladies Club because I am also. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, anxious ladies. Uh, exactly. And I feel like, yeah, social media, just the kind of the notification system, the reds, the, the, the blinking lights, it kind of <laughs> are trigger like, like literal and like metaphorical triggers for that type of like anxiety. So I totally empathize with that. Do you have a set of considerations that you sort of run through before you post something? And Khalil, you kind of touched on this, that you're careful with how you move online, but do you feel like you, I mean, I guess Twitter is, very, is quite different than Instagram, but do you feel like you have kind of boundaries and considerations or that you can, or that you're pretty um, unscripted? 
I'm curious about like what your mental processes are or if you have questions that you ask yourself like could this have like x y or z implication you like any so. like criteria I'm curious yeah I well criteria was not the way I was thinking about it necessarily I guess but you don't I, have to answer in that way I know <laughs> I, I just have been thinking about this a lot because um I recently became friends with someone who was telling me that they know a lot of people who have like multiple accounts um mm -hmm. and I personally have uh I have like an alt Instagram and an alt Twitter that like no one follows no one knows about them it's very much like and I actually used to do this on Twitter where I would just like write a tweet and keep it as a draft. So, like, I have the same urges and impulses as, like, people who tweet all day do. But, like, I'm very, <laughs> very, like... I think I think because I look at it all day, it, like, almost makes me more anxious because I see the fuck shit that happens and I, like, see how bad it can get. But I think also I'm sort of, like, an introverted person naturally and I don't... I am terrified of the idea of, like, so many people knowing, like, what's going on in my head. Like, I'm just a very keep that for the intimate people but um but yeah I've been thinking about this a lot and it's so interesting that there is this space on social media where you can sort of fragment your identity and like be like I don't want these friends to see this but like my friends who I've never met before might want to see this on this other account and I feel like it's it's weird it's it's like kind of liberating but also I think for me if I did it too much would get confusing and I probably would struggle with it. I'm curious if you guys do the same thing or if you've thought about it, but yeah. For me, so I wanted to have a fake Instagram and then I have, I've made too many Instagrams on my phone <laughs> because of the Met and making like multiple dummy accounts because people try to steal our identity. And so I can't make any more, um, which is so sad, but I do do this thing, which like I will sound ridiculous, but I love to fake drunk tweet. And I love to perform, like, ferality to just see what people will do. Wow. And it's so fun because I have my family on social, too. And so I just sometimes perform to just, like, get to them. And it, for me, it's just this little release. And it's never anything, like, too wild. But I'll just, like, tweet some, some like, you know, like, some thotty shit. And then people are like, oh, my God, you don't know what you're doing. And I'm like, excuse me, I do this professionally. Like, I know the exact limits of how crazy I can get before something actually bad happens because I've had bad things happen. I've, I've definitely made mistakes that have almost cost me career, my career full stop. Um, and I kind of love, like, riding the edge of it. Um, especially because I can't do the fake accounts thing. And then also I think too, as a social manager, I just don't get any joy out of the idea of the fake accounts. I'm like, I'm already so mm -hmm. knee deep in this shit um, because my personal accounts are also arts oriented. So it's just like another account to toggle through um, is difficult. But the, the fence I was going to make was just like fashion and like trashy fashion that I love. Um, and I can't make it yet. Maybe it'll be a Tumblr. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by the pump fake because it's so fun. I swear, like, the text messages are so funny for people. <laughs> your family members, yeah, like, I'll tell you, mom. mom. Is like, excuse me! I'm like, okay, like, <laughs> Marilyn, <laughs> mom, this is, I'm, I'm right here, I can talk to you on the phone. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, Kimberly and Kalila, you're part of kind of developing, well, I guess I can re-employ this criteria word mm. again, developing the sort of, I mean, I'm assuming that you both, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you both come up with what the outline is going to post, what mm -hmm. the standards for that brand is, what the standards are for the museum. I was wondering if you could talk about sort of the the work the the work aspect mm -hmm. of creating, I guess, this social media criteria, posting criteria for companies that are you're so very connected to, but that are not you at the same time. Right. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, the first thing that I think about is how different it's been at every place that I've worked. Um, I think. There have been places that were truly established in terms of their brand, like Fader has been around for so long that they know who they are very confidently. Um, and then, you know, at Genius, they're sort of a newer brand. I came in and they were, they had just hired all of the content editorial team. So that was a little bit more of like, let's establish what this is. And that, and that was a lot of my role. And I mean, look at the outline and look at Genius and they're just completely different personalities on social and so I think a lot of my work is like can you I don't know empathize enough with a brand or adapt yourself and and perform a brand identity and less so like 
how do you put yourself into this? And I think it also, it depends on where you are. Like, there are some brands, like, I know MTV News, they have one person tweeting um, in very much her voice for the brand. And so she's more of, like, a representative, but, like, that's what MTV has decided that they want. And I think, in my experience, it's it's been the opposite. It's, like, can you speak uh, in a way that represents everyone here and all of the stories that we're telling. Um, and it's like a weird balance because the stuff that works is the stuff that's more like, this is a strong personality, but you also don't want to, I mean, in my opinion, I, I wouldn't want to take away from all of the, the unique voices that are in the room, in our editorial room, um, that are writing completely different stories every day. So yeah, it's, it's like an interesting balance, but it's also an interesting practice in like empathy in a weird way. So yeah. Yeah, for for me, similarly, I work at a storied institution, um, and our entire digital identity is in service of the museum's mission of education. So first and foremost, it's all about sharing things. And recently, um, kind of part of a recent five-year plan that we, we mapped out was an interest in relevance as opposed to just education. And so it's kind of putting legs to education, which is really nice. Um, but when it comes down to social, it's it's so interesting because we are on – many different types of channels, and that requires a different choreography on each. Um, in my time at the Met, I started our WeChat presence, which is a Chinese social media network. And Chinese social, even the most historic, storied institutions are kind of ratchet. <laughs> and so there's just this, like, culture there where it's just, like, you might see, like, a really obscene gif, and it's just, like, that's totally standard and fair game, especially on something like Weibo. And so trying to figure out how to arrive on those platforms while keeping integrity and while having a, a supremely scholarly voice, mm -hmm. but also wanting to respect the platform that you arrive at. Like, I have a very, like, take-your-shoes-off-at-the-door approach to social. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that presents itself as like a really fun challenge to try to do or thinking about, you know, Instagram stories arriving within Instagram and our audience there is already huge. We have almost 2 million followers. And so if we do an Instagram story, it's not for play play. Mm -hmm. It's not about, um, social media that expires that entire, it's so fun. Cause it goes away thing. Like m irritates me to no end. Yeah. Uh, I'm not like, you know putting my butt on the gram because I think it's going to disappear. Like, no. <laughs> there are servers. Like, I just, they're trying to play us. And, like, I love, you know, I love all my connections with social networks, all that to say. But it's it's such an interesting and fascinating culture when you think about being in a high-stakes game, but also, like I said, wanting to have a, a shoes-off-at-the-door policy where it's just respect. It's like, we have a Pinterest board that's called Dream Home because people build homes on there, and we can share period rooms as if they're homes, and because they were homes, um, as opposed to like this isn't the exhibitions board. Like nobody wants to follow that shit. Mm, they want to take right. these things, these bits of content, and be able to tell stories about themselves. And that's how our social identity is built. Um, and I think that that's what's most successful institutionally as well. I never had an opportunity to shout out one of our Pinterest boards, so thank hey. you guys. Dream holes, dream holes. Check it out. Check it out. <laughs> that actually um, yeah. reminded me of of something on a sort of different tangent, but. Um, I am a non-American, and I was applying for a work visa, uh, and so I was very conscious of the fact that social is, of course, public. Even if it's private, it's never completely private, right? Um, so in the same way that nothing really disappears if you're doing it institutionally, nothing disappears if you're doing it personally either. And, uh, you know, crossing the border and that sort of thing is something that I've had to think about to to the point of, you know, to, to my mental detriment um, because it's it's a very real thing. Like one tweet could have a very material uh, impact on on my life or anyone's life, right? And so, so that's something that I've had to to think about in terms of non disappearing content. And that's yeah. kind of a great segue into the next question. Yeah. Um, so this one, I guess, this kind of a intense question, but you but it could be taken any direction that you wish. Um, the internet has a certain mythology as being a safe space, and I think that that is partially because, as we all just communicated in our own ways, it was a way to connect and to, and to like, I don't know, catfish a little bit. I mean, just to, like, play a role where you weren't actually physically present, and that was kind of shocking at first. But that's sort of no longer really true and most of us are connect our i mean our in, our internet presence is connected to our to our physical body and 
Do you, so do you feel safe online? I mean, online in the space of posting and receiving feedback and participating in it, but also like, do you feel a connection between your online presence and like your, your actual physical day to day? I think as I've gotten older and spent more time with the internet being completely integrated into my life, I don't really feel a sort of concrete um, distance between my physical self and my, however you want to call it, my internet self. But I, I don't think I've ever felt safe either. Um, I grew up in Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa, so a lot of my first internet experiences were as an African kid in Africa, had never been to America, but was interacting with people in America whose first responses to me were like, do you have a pet monkey? Or, you know, mm. like, how do you know how to read and write? And, and so I don't think I've ever felt particularly safe as myself on the internet. Like I've always been made to some extent, whether it's, in, you know, in that experience as an African person or much later in life as a woman or a black person or whatever, I don't, I don't think there's ever been any particular instances where I felt especially safe. But on the other hand, I have met some of my best friends, some of the people who've made me feel the most like myself online. So I think there's there's that dichotomy there for me, for sure. Yeah, I think um, one of my earliest experiences, um, and this isn't like just one that I can remember, but in terms of like I, me being, um, I was like, I don't know, 13, 14, um, and having fun on MySpace, cool. Um, spent a lot of time on YouTube as well. And I think that, like, comment section on YouTube was where I really sort of grappled with, like, okay, this is, I can't just, like, say anything. I can't just, like, talk to anyone because it gets crazy in there. Like, people will say the most sexist, racist, homophobic stuff. And I think at a, to see that at a young age, I mean, you just know, like, it's not... There's no way I'm going to ever feel safe here. Um, I think there is something really, like, valuable and rewarding, too, about having or, or at least knowing the potential of the platform in a way that you don't get to experience in your physical reality necessarily as, like, a woman of color. Um, so it's it, – and it's not even that I use it or – have capitalized on it myself, but just knowing that there's the potential to have the platform is also like really beautiful and empowering and not necessarily safe, but I think a positive thing. Yeah. Oh man. It's, it's incredible. The friendships that I've had, um, through the internet. Um, some of my closest friends that I talk to every day are very much internet friends. And as a person who was kind of a social recluse most of my life, the internet has had, an incredible. I mean, it's like why I have my job. It's why I have everything. Um, and so, when I say that it is a place that I do not feel safe at all, I, I mean that very seriously. Um, I have had instances of all types of awful things being said to me online um, that have impacted me in a physical and mental way that, in a way that I just couldn't have anticipated. Um, I had an incident last year that like almost took me out. You know, like quite frankly, and I'm still grappling with it today. And it's it's so obscene because of course you want to think about how you're engaging online and because it's my job I'm so married to it and because it's my life you know I I, I have no regrets about my presence there um, but it is it is a scary place it is a scary kind of ecosystem but one that is worth the risk I mean we all live and work in New York there are, it comes with its own sets of, of difficulties and dangers uh, but uh, yeah it, it's it's something that I've been trying to really consider and think through and been really adamant about being an ally to other people who have sim similar situations to mine um, in, in very private ways uh, because I think that that work is important as well because people don't always want to tell the stories of people just like saying wild shit to them because you don't want to work through it and there are very physical consequences to even being you know mining through mm -hmm. building a case for a online harassment um, so it's it's a crazy thing but you know it's something I've been gearing up for ever since Oprah announced it in like the early 2000s and my mom and I talked about it and um you know it's it's a it's a it's such a weird not weird because it's it's very real but it's odd that this place that can give so much can take away so mm -hmm. much and it in the ways in which it gives and takes are so relative and so moment to moment and I mean it's just wild as shit that we log on and yeah. it's wild as shit that some of us never log off 
um, and then for some reason think that there can't be a rupture um, that arrives in ways that we don't anticipate. I don't know. Hey, thank you all for sharing that. I mean, I think to close up, thinking about this give and take, this kind of tension that always exists with living online, with our kind of everyday reality sort of embroiled in the online sphere. I was interested to hear from all of you about how do you keep yourself grounded, like in a space that's, okay, first so much about the self in a way that could border on a narcissism that I, I don't want to make a judgment to say that's a good or a bad thing. It just is what it is. And I feel like we're all participating and are complicit in it. I think that's kind of also what drives me to sort of do my detox. I'm like, I'm a little bit too into myself right now. But yeah, how do you, how do you stay how do you stay like grounded? Or if the, maybe I'm making that assumption that that's important. Well, it can go the other way too. Like how do you stop? I mean, as you're saying a wild message from making you feel like shit. I mean, how do you just um like regulate your perception of both yourself and others? Um I'd be curious to hear. I think for me personally, uh I am really like every day actively trying to find value in myself that isn't that so whether it's like peer-to-peer in real life or by myself um just you know counteracting the like hour at night that I spend on Instagram feeling like damn I should have went to this show with these friends or whatever counteracting that with like a very visceral like physical like this is what I value about being by myself right now or being in this space with like these two friends as opposed to there or and not also not like documenting it like it still happened like this is still a real thing mm-hmm. um, I think that's what I try to do a lot and I and it's pretty easy for me to remind myself of that but I do have to remind myself um, but I think that's yeah that's like my sort of like grounding practice is like telling myself you're here like you're fine like you're good. <laughs> you are good. Yeah. More than good. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about how we are in it, or not. Okay, so Sarah Lewis, I mentioned her, I've mentioned her in literally every interview I've done for like the last two months. Um, but she has this issue that she edited of Aperture Magazine, which is a photography magazine. Um, and the issue is called Vision and Justice. And it was the first um, issue that they did that was dedicated to black photographers and her editor's note she talks about us being in a moment of supreme visual literacy and when I think about grounding or think about imaging and specifically self-imaging I th- try really hard to resist judging people for the way in which they image themselves um, I think that there is a lot of pressure especially within influencer culture to say oh that's facetious or oh that's just for this reason it's like mind your damn business <laughs> Like, let it happen, you know? I have friends who we exclusively, we don't even, like, exchange pleasantries. We just send each other each other, like, the B-roll selfies. Like, I'm here for that. Like, anybody who wants to send me, like, your OD good B-roll selfie that you didn't post on the gram, like, I'm here for it because, like, I was going to say, niggas get shot every day, B. Like, but, like, (laughs) truly, you know, when you think about, like, I think about my, my my personal channels as an opportunity to share black life. And I dare someone to tell me that I'm self-centered. I dare someone to challenge me as a narcissist. Like, sure, I, I'm conceited. I got a reason. You know, like, I'm here for that. Uh, and I'm here to celebrate. And I like to arrive in people's comment sections to be like, damn, you look good. Uh, and not a predatory way. Because I think that sometimes those things are necessary. And we can't assume that people are making moves for the reasons that they're making moves. And I think it's unfair. It's an unfair hand that I think, especially an unfair hand that millennials are dealt online. Mm-hmm. Um, or even young people, you two grown and this, like the ways in which we police and sexualize young women's bodies, especially it's just, it can, mm. you can be sexy for you. Um, you know, I have a huge repository of nudes in my phone that are just mine. Um, and I think that that's really important. And that celebration is something that can't be taken lightly in this, in this moment of just like supreme danger. You want to talk about the internet being a safe place or not people's opinions about people's selfies. That shit's dangerous too. It cuts mm-hmm. deep. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into imaging yourself or thinking about someone with autoimmune deficiency or something like this and posting a picture of their skin or something like this. Like, those things are courageous acts. Um, and, you know, even the way that we talk about protests and, and the imaging there, it's like there's a re- level of risk. And I think if there's a conversation about what that risk looks like and taking that seriously, that's one thing. But critiquing someone for showing up and having a good time in the company of their friends and doing something that makes them feel empowered, like, 
I don't know if I can participate in that kind of shaming. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's all very important. I agree with that completely. I think for me personally, what I've done is, um, first of all, on on Instagram, I, I made my page private, and inf- I originally did that to protect my boyfriend of whom I was posting pictures. But then I realized that I just felt much better in that way, and I actually started posting less. I think um, started looking at my Instagram way less. It started sort sort of became a place where I would post things after I'd already sent them to friends. And sort of a similar thing on Twitter, which is I only have my notifications set to people I follow. So if I haven't chosen to let you into my life, I don't need to hear your opinion. You know, whether it's good or bad, I don't I don't want it. Um, so I think that's something that's made me a little bit more conscious um, of of what I do online. And also my mom started following me on Twitter. So I have to think about that a lot. If I haven't called her back, I can't really tweet yet. Um, I saw saw that tweet. (laughs) Wow, wow, wow. I love a parent where you at comment. (laughs) So you just tweeted. My mom came at me so hard in Facebook Messenger this week that it like cut me deep. She was like, you telling the whole internet how you feel and you don't I was like, yo, chill. Libras, man. I'm like, yo, bro, you got to fall back because we can have a conversation. But you never asked me how I felt. You just responded to me telling people how I felt. Wow. Let mama know. Wow, this was absolutely amazing. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much to Khalila Deuce, Kimberly Drew, and Ravi Kamir for their brilliance, their excellence, and just yes. yeah for showing up and being here and sharing. So and thank you so much. And to Sienna, our producer, and hey. to Hassan, our sound engineer, and to Top Rank for making this entire thing possible, and Red Bull for yeah. having us here today. All the thank yous. All the thank yous. Yeah, so that's our episode. Follow us at Top Break Magazine. Podcast is on iTunes and on SoundCloud. So, yeah. If you have feedback or ideas for future episodes or comments of any kind, please feel free to get in touch. As we mentioned, this is supposed to be a collaborative platform. So you can find us at Marcel at TopRankMagazine.com or at Isabel at TopRankMagazine.com. And, yes, our and our handle is at TopRankMagazine on Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. And we'll be back soon yes. next time Pump, yeah. promptly <laughs> alright we're, we're like we're not actually sure yet when's the next one but alright bye bye Sivy Panarada Yena Kala Optimitri Sivy in my pants and tin Sivy in my altar bag Sivy in my heart attack